0: the talk show a very good evening to you and welcome to the Talk Shop with me, Master Chabam Dolo on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. On In our talkback session tonight, we're looking at corruption and asking how can government fight corruption? This follows Justice Minister Jeff Khatebe's announcement that government will name and shame convicted corrupt officials. David Lewis will be joining us on the line. He is Executive Director at Corruption Watch and we're taking your calls on 891 104 891 or join the conversation via SMS on 34701. SMS number is 34701, and SMSs are charged at two rand. And then at around 7.30, we are looking at unsecured lending and accessing new mortgage loans. We'll be talking to Gary Palmer, who is CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions. We unfortunately did not have time to have this conversation with Gary last night, so it is happening tonight at around 7.30. In the second hour of the talk shop tonight, uh, we'll be talking to Eniwe Chinguete. He is a project manager of the Afrobarometer at IDASA, and he'll be talking about uh, the latest Afrobarometer South Africa data analysis. It concludes that poor South Africans are more active but less well-served by government. We'll be talking about South Africans' interactions with poverty on a daily basis a little bit later on. And uh, African is also... Also coming away, brought to you by the Eskia Institute. And we're going to wrap up tonight by talking to Kim Dowdswell, who is SHL South Africa's Head of Science Research. And we're looking at the first annual talent report for 2012. This looks at... Um, uh, The top 25 leaders of today and tomorrow worldwide, and we'll be getting a report back with regards to where South Africa ranks with regards to the first annual talent report for 2012. This is all coming your way right here on the talk shop with me, Masichaba Mdolo. Let's get right into it. Our talk back session tonight looking at how government. Can fight corruption. What would you suggest? How should government be fighting corruption? Um, uh, the, minis- the announcement by Minister Jeff Khatebe uh, that government will name and shame convicted corrupt officials. Is this enough to deal with the perceived rampant corruption within government? Corruption Watch is calling on government to also expose officials who are facing corruption charges who, res- who resign before disciplinary action is taken. And are then rehired by another department or province. Now, according to Transparency International Corruption Perceptions, the index uh, South Africa is given a score of just 4.3 out of 10. How can government fight corruption? What are your suggestions? David Lewis joins us on the line, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. And of course we are taking your calls O eight nine one one oh four two oh seven. O eight nine one one oh four two oh seven or join our conversation via SMS on three four seven oh one. SMS number is three four seven oh one and SMSs are charged at two rand. Good evening to you, David Lewis, and thank you so much for joining us. So welcome on to the talk shop thank you. It is wonderful to have you back again with us. Now, Minister Jeff Khatebe is uh, talking about naming and shaming convicted corrupt officials. Corruption Watch has got a couple of suggestions on how to expand on this.
1: Yeah, you know there there are you know I think that naming and shaming is is good. Let me tell you from the let me say from the start mm. um, and that's a largely what we're our activity is is, is Based on, or partly what it's based on, I think that the the problem is that there are very few, uh, uh, convicted, uh, corrupt, convicted people convicted of corruption. In fact, I think that the minister indicated in the, over the last three years, 35 people have been convicted of corruption. The rate of prosecution is low, and the rate of, and the rate of conviction is naturally even lower and uh you know what what we think is really lacking is are the of public servants who are subject not to criminal charges but to disciplinary charges who then are often notoriously on suspension sometimes for years on end, and then just before their disciplinary hearing comes up, they resign, and it appears uh, oftentimes you know go to the department next door or the province next door and get a job uh, in which they are equally able to continue doing what it is that they were subject to disciplinary charges for in the first place. So we think that this should extend to that as well.
0: But why would they not face any kind of criminal charges? And why the veil of secrecy?
1: Well... a good, good question, and I think that in some, in, in many circumstances they should be, many, many circumstances, those who are subject to disciplinary charges should also be facing criminal charges. There are some, some acts, and they're not uncommon. Conflicts of interest are, are an interesting one here, that are not necessarily subject to criminal sanction, but that are nevertheless amount to highly inappropriate and indeed corrupt conduct on the part of people who are custodians of public resources. Uh, And that's what is usually subject to disciplinary charges. Nepotism is another one often that is not subject to to criminal sanction, but Mm -hmm. is nevertheless inappropriate. And these are what disciplinary charges are leveled for and um, and we think that those should be subject to naming and shaming as well, and they should certainly should be subject to blacklisting from the public service.
0: You talk about nepotism and a conflict of interest. Is there no clarity with regards to what exactly nepotism is, what the circumstances that lead to it are? You and I may understand because we think it's common sense, but common sense is not common to everyone. No,
1: not, it's not it's common at all, and it's... And it's, and it's there are there are grey areas, you know. It's it's perfectly legitimate for 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 business and and uh, and government to talk to each other. Mm. it's absolutely desirable. I mean, when the line is crossed between between talking to each other and what then becomes a rampant conflict of interest is not absolutely clear. Uh, you know, e- equally with nepotism. I mean, you know, over over centuries and in many countries, networks have assisted each other, and there's nothing. Uh, per se harmful about that. In fact, you know, many, ti- many times there's something very, very positive about it. But when you put somebody, a favored candidate, in charge of a position, and we see this often in the reports mm. that we're getting, in order to ensure that you get a payback, uh, partly because you put that official in charge of a, of a, a important procurement position. Then you have, you know, not the end of corruption in the nepotism, but the beginning of corruption, beginning of really serious corruption. So, you know, there are many cases of, of apparent corruption or misconduct that have to be judged on their own individual facts and, 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 and merits. And so, inevitably those will not be, or, or in many cases, those will not be subject to criminal sanction, but they may still be, as they say in the public service, conduct unbecoming a public mm. servant is mm-hmm. subject to disciplinary sanction, and um, and and we think that those should be exposed as well because they they are seriously not doing our public service and its image any good.
0: And and I I go back again to nepotism, David. There seems to be a lot of confusion with regards to what exactly constitutes nepotism. We read about uh, public officials who hire their children, who hire um, uh, the mothers of their children, their baby mamas, who hire relatives in their departments and who work under them and report to them directly. This clearly is is a grey area that one would not be encouraged to go down.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the public service has... Has some pretty, um, you know, strict rules on, on the process of hiring somebody and advertising, and and those rules should be ad- adhered to. Um, uh, and as I say, there there is there there are more or less uh, damaging cases of, of nepotism, but we're getting a lot of reports, particularly about small towns where you get the idea sometimes that that people are, and this is from reporters from those small towns, people who are reporting to us from those small towns, that people are placed in, as I say, positions of real, where they're really able to influence procurement decisions, where they really are able to influence how public resources are used, and they're put in positions like that in order to benefit those who have put them in their positions. Now, that's Really serious, and, and 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 it's having very serious and dramatic effects in many small towns where people don't have lawyers and NGOs and the sorts of people who, I suppose, worry about these things to uh, to look after the, or to to have oversight of the situation there. So, so, yeah, there are, there are very serious cases of nepotism. But as I say, in the public service, there are rules about these things, and mm-hmm. the rules should be followed.
0: Now, when it comes to local government, I think there is uh, understanding with regards to the high rate of corruption taking place there. But based on Corruption Watch's data, I understand that education as well? yeah' Is another Edu- area where well, it, corruption is
1: rampant. It, the education the reports on education are interesting because they're by no means only about uh, the the provincial departments of education as we in a sense became used to in the limpopo textbooks uh, scandal they they're, they're, we're getting a lot of reports about schools all of which are encrusted with you know a fairly significant amount of Public Money and public resources and and where there are some people who where under normal circumstances, they may not stand up and speak out against corruption, where their children 's future is at stake that they do, and the amounts of money are not like you know the arms deal. But they are, are, they make the difference between their, whether there's an extra classroom built or not, or a computer lab built, or a library built, and they make a real difference to the life prospects of some otherwise very, very disadvantaged people. So they felt very strongly, and I think that's why we're getting so many reports. And as I say, the sums of money involved maybe 70,000, 100,000, 200,000 rand. They're not 30 billion rand cases of corruption. But when you spread them over the tens of thousands of schools in the whole country, that, you know, could start adding up to a large part of what I think is the largest component of our national budget.
0: I'm looking at some of the SMSs coming in, and we are looking forward to hearing from you. What are your suggestions on how government can fight corruption? And do you believe that this is a war that can be won? Taking your calls on 891 104 891 104 or SMS 34701. SMS number is 34701, and SMSs are charged at two rand. David, do you think as Corruption Watch that this war can be won? Uh, but before you respond to me, let's just quickly take a break. We're back after this. The talk shop. This is the talk shop on SAFM one hundred four to one hundred seven. I am Masachaba Mdolo in conversation with David Lewis, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. In our talkback session tonight, and we're asking you. What suggestions do you have for government in the fight for uh, against corruption? And do you think that this is a war that can be won? I'm looking at some of the SMSs coming in. Lungisani Dinga in Queenstown says corruption is giving us a bad image. It should be treated as attempted murder. Okay, that's a bit, that's that's harsh, especially considering the grey areas and uh, the um, you know uh, seeds of corruption that David was talking about earlier on that not necessarily mean that one should be facing criminal charges because it is not a criminal act, so to speak. Another SMS says that you can name corrupt officials, but you cannot shame them. Look at the many serving politicians with clouds over their heads who display no remorse but only arrogant denial even after they are jailed. Another SMS says it's a good step, but it will be a drop in the ocean if the culprits will not be tried in a court of law and they must be jailed for a minimum of 13 years in prison and they must not get parole. That is coming in from CP in Pietermaritzburg. Sajan Indenza says, the ANC government will never win the corruption battle. Corruption is in their blood from head to toe. Another SMS um, says, uh, name and shame, ha ha ha, uh, steal millions, and uh, you will shame you or steal millions and will give your business a tender only after two years leaving government service. Um, Another SMS says, name, shame, and blacklist from state employment. Also, repay the money. Repay the money. I want to talk about that one because uh, there's a lot of money that seems to just fall into a black hole. And uh, like you said, yes, it's the gray areas and uh, the conviction rate, um, is uh, lamentable. But uh, what about the money? What happened to that money? We're talking to David Lewis, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. David, do you think that this is a war that, is, uh, that we will be able to win? The war on corruption especially within government?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I suppose we wouldn't be doing what we were doing if we didn't believe that. And there are some quite successful role models in the world and, um, and I think that that's, you know, and you your callers evidence this, that South Africans are are outraged about it and and we've won some pretty big battles in the past, you know. So I I don't think this one is, is one that can't be won. I mean, you know, it won't be sort of eliminated from the face of the country any more than racism or, you know, dare I say it, murder or rape will be absolutely eliminated. But I think you can do a lot to to make a big dent in it.
0: But are people hopeful? I mean, it's very interesting that uh, Ranjeni Munsami in the Daily Maverick spoke about uh, the how South Africans are suffering from scandal fatigue, and well, you yourself... Well,
1: I don't think it's scandal fatigue. I don't think that people are are, are sort of bored of, of of the scandals. I do sense a little bit that people are... Uh, and again, I think some of your callers evidence this that they're getting kind of resigned to the notion mm. that there's nothing that can be done mm. about it, and I think you know that's a, that, I think that's a very very dangerous mm. uh, development, and in some ways, you know, precisely what contribution we think that we can make is persuading people that this is not that this is not the the case, but on the other hand, you know that that degree of resignation is also you know, uh, counted by the number of people who are sort of willing to to talk to us and to report to us. I mean, I should say about the the the, the, the caller, and I've heard this often, that says that people can be named, but they can't be shamed. Uh, you know, and that's interesting. I think that that's. You know, partly true because they need to be shamed in some sense by their own peers. They need to have action taken against them by their own government, their own peers, their own political parties, their own associations. But what we're also finding quite a bit of is whistleblowers coming to us Mm. who are not themselves corrupt, but Mm. who are working in departments or in institutions, and they're ashamed to be associated with them they They're absolutely ashamed that when you know their, their children are at school and their their dad is working in department X or in institution Y everybody else in the school thinks their dad must be a crook you know
0: but this, system... is a good sh-
1: this is quite an interesting shaming mm. aspect
0: which is which is absolutely wonderful because it means that uh, we are getting more and more outraged yeah. civil servants coming yeah. forward and saying this is not right, but we can. Const- continuously hear of the whistleblowers themselves being intimidated, being pushed out of their positions, being pushed out of departments. And one has to say, is the system shaming those who do wrong, or is it literally just turning a blind eye?
1: I don't think it's turning a blind eye. I mean, I think, you know, witness um, Minister Kadebe's statement, you know, and his his resolve. I, I don't think it goes far enough with respect, but I think it's definitely you know a step in the right direction i mean i think one of the most interesting uh, proposals that has come out recently from the public service commission and that's been very actively supported by by minister susulu from the, De- the ministry of public service administration mm-hmm. and and minister manuel is the proposal that that uh, public servants not be allowed to Uh, Participate in the ownership of businesses That do business with the state Now one would think that a fairly Sort of obvious place to start And it is quite an obvious place to start But it's good that they're starting At such an obvious place Because I think that legislation there And action taken against those who do That who, who participate on both sides of a purchasing and selling arrangement would go a long way towards limiting the possibility of corruption in the, in the public service. So, you know, and, and that's been, as I say, very energetically pursued by the, by the Public Service Commission and it's been supported by two powerful ministers which mm-hmm. I, I believe i believe have a lot of influence and and that's great uh, the national development plan said some i think very good things i think there are real problems in the criminal justice system and there i agree with your with yes, your call mm-hmm. that, that people have to be seen to be to be punished i mean there's no doubt about that and there are real problems with the criminal justice system and i think there again problems that some of which could be fixed quite easily, and I don't really understand why they're not being.
0: I want to talk about the DTI's name and shame list and how the perception is that it is those who don't have powerful friends that are only on the list, and um, you know the thinking that many people are getting away with uh, corrupt behavior uh, because they are covered or they have mm. the right protection, so to speak. But before we go, let's take with Akele in Johannesburg. Hi, Akele.
2: I have it, Mr.
0: I'm very well, thanks.
2: And I'm not sure about the name and shame what I do, work, but uh, I kind of like feel like the minister is aware what he should do, and he decides to pull out the name and shame, and that's not gonna work. Uh, but I want to bring an example. I'll ask the gentleman that you have there, that what is his opinion when you have someone who's never done any civil engineering of any kind, he's just a mama from KZN just a woman or a father. This guy is building a road with Marion and Robert. Why should that person be involved in the construction of the road? Because clearly for you to be in the space of constructing roads, you need to be capacitated. You need to have work for a company that mm-hmm. builds roads. And I'll give you another extreme again. The, the school feeding schemes. Why do they give those uh, 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 opportunities or tenders to someone who's never been in the food industry? And, and avoid the people who've been in the food industry. All of a sudden you get a mama by the corner there who's never even cooked, in, uh, you know, like two plates for the public. But then she gets uh, to do The government is aware of what it must do, but it decides not to do,
3: okay.
2: to do it. Because well, for some reason they enjoy corruption.
0: When you say they're aware of what it is that they ought to do, what should they be doing?
2: Well, what they should be doing, and let's use, for instance, like some, 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 some provincial uh, government of education. If they went out and said, for all, school, for all school, school feeding schemes, we are only going to select companies that are in the, in the food business. That are in the restaurants type of businesses. So, if you want to be involved in it, you must first go and serve the in the in the, in the food chain business before you start up your own company. But, but what like, yeah,
0: what about the many people who have been involved in some way or other in that particular industry or sector, but have not been able to start their own companies due to constraint of funds, due to lack of opportunities? Um, when we talk about uh, black economic empowerment, it is also about opening up opportunities to previously disadvantaged.
2: South Africans. That's fine, and then they must go to a company that is capacitated, first market themselves to actually work together with them instead of them taking on a job that they have no knowledge of because that ends up inflating the cost that end up making sure that there are too many hands to be washed in the system because everything now is given on the black. I'm not saying that the companies who have never done work before must not be involved, but you need to prove to me that you have a certain knowledge of that industry. You cannot just come by the corner there and tell me that you're going to build the road. I'm aware of the roads that are being constructed by women and men who don't even know what this road is road compaction is.
0: But, but he I, 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 he hear you, I hear, you, Zakele. I hear you, and and I'd like to talk further on this. So let's uh, uh op- our lines are open. Give us your thoughts okay. on what Zakele is bringing to the table, and that is a, a whole lot of, of companies that are mushrooming in various sectors where the owners know nothing about those particular sectors. 0891 104207 Or SMS three four seven zero one. SMS number is three four seven zero one, and SMSs are. T- Charged at two rand. We continue with David Lewis, executive director at Corruption Watch. Right after this break, and we're also reading some of the SMSs coming in and taking your calls. The talk show. This is the talk shop on SAFM 104 to 107. I am Masachaba Mdolo in conversation with David Lewis, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. We're talking about corruption and how to fight corruption and asking, is this a war that can be won? 891 104 891 104 is the number to dial to join our conversation or SMS 34701 and SMSs are charged at 2 Rand. Very interesting observations that Kelly is making especially around companies David that have seemingly no experience um, running uh, you know huge projects in particular sectors and coming forward and um, bidding for uh, these projects and and getting them
1: yeah well you know It shouldn't be happening that companies that are completely incapable of delivering on a contract are given a contract. And, again, there are procurement rules that govern that. But, you know, I'm less worried about those situations in which there is a genuine transformation Mm. objective behind it and then those situations where the company is given the contract not because of a transformation objective but because of some. Prior relationship to the person awarding the contract, like for example in the f- infamous NYDA, uh, KISS festival a couple of years ago, yeah, where festival, one of the yes. catering contracts was awarded to a relative of the uh, one of the leaders of the of the NYDA, and the person was a policeman. I mean, he had no experience in, I think, probably even making a sandwich, let alone cooking for a couple of hundred. A couple of tens of thousands of people. So I mean, there are ridiculous examples, and um, and they're usually they're usually the corrupt ones. You know, where a company is given the chance uh, by subcontracting in a particular in a in a particular contract, and I, I don't think that's a problem, even if we land up sometimes having to pay a little bit more for for it. And the 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 the, the again, the rules, the procurement rules as to what concession can be made to those companies are fairly clear mm-hmm. you know the problem is when there is a relationship between the, the the buyer of the services and the seller of the services and usually they're the same people in different uh, shapes and forms and guises and that that's that, that of course that as I, clearly, I think it was is, yes. is completely right to 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 be angry about um but it's not always the case. That's n- Not all transformation is that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But what about uh, those uh, government employees who are suspected of being involved in some kind of corrupt activity and they then, as you said, resign and end up with a tender later on? Or even a government official yeah. who two years later is awarded a massive, you know, millions of, of, of worth of, of a tender. And, and one has to ask, how does that Happen. Is that not a? Um, is there not some kind of impropriety somewhere there?
1: Yeah. No. I mean, the the the, the real worry is somebody who has been who has been suspended or subject to some sort of disciplinary process for a corruption or financial misconduct related uh, charge, mm-hmm. and who who then uh, resigns before he's, or sometimes even actually is found guilty on the charge. But somehow manages then to secure a job in another province or another government department or another government institution. And we've heard of cases of this and there are well documented cases of this happening at a very high level, to people in very senior positions. And that, you know, that should be eliminated by a blacklist. I mm. mean there's no question about it. And I think that what Minister Khadeb is suggesting is The beginning of that suggestion and i think that suggestion must be carried through it must be carried further because if you rely only on a criminal conviction to blacklist people and given the state of our criminal justice system in particular but also given the length of time to which it takes to prosecute on, on mm, criminal mm. offences, this would not be enough.
0: But what about those who are, ha, have, uh, have been working in government for a certain amount of time and are privy to all kinds of information and after leaving government and have started their own companies two years later, they receive tenders worth millions?
1: Well, I, I, I think that that, again, I think that you hit the nail on the head. with a, And this is an, an offence that starts... That usually is with people at very senior levels. Mm,
3: mm. I mean,
1: I think you know people who are ministers and who are DGs and who are deputy DGs in government departments should face a, a, a cooling off period. What do they call it? A gardening leave period. You know, even if they, even sometimes if they, you know, I'm, I'm even open to the possibility that people should be paid some to, to some extent Golden handshake. for not mm. working but they should not be able to go and work in areas in which their ministry was regulating or, or in which they were purchasing. I mean, we're looking at one case at the moment that I, I can't give details of, but, but I hope that we will be able to reveal details. You know, somebody who awarded was very instrumental in awarding a major contract and, um, you know, very shortly afterwards, uh, um, popped up as the CEO of the company to which the contract had been awarded. Absolutely, oh, yeah.
0: yeah. And and we've, we've I think we've all, we all know of at least one company mm. where such a scenario occurred mm. and one has to ask really, um, how does that then work? Gerald and Durban, good evening to you and welcome.
3: Hi, well, Mr. Chaba.
4: Uh, hi to you, uh, David Lewis. Uh, I just want to bring up two things. One is the issue of uh, Dr. Siva Pillay, who was, uh, according to the uh, Minister of Health, uh, um, uh, uh, I think it's Musaleedi, he, he made a comment here on SAFM on a morning show to say that it was a combination that he resigned and that he was pushed. Now, the Sunday Times, the Times report said one in five people in the, um, Department of Health were, uh, were, were on the suppliers' database. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, the minister seemed to be a little, uh, uh You know, sympathetic to his cause and was sad to see him push. But, you know, if a minister cannot protect someone who's fighting corruption, and from what I understand, what I've read in the media, civil play was doing an excellent job of of trying to clean up corruption in in the eastern Cape. He had Mm. what appears to be zero backing from government. And then the other issue is, you know, it just boils down to this leadership, by example, and it's just such a lack of it. We've had the Minister of Finance and we've had Gredi Montashi telling us how uh, state employees are not going to be allowed to do uh, business <laughs> with the government mm. and mm. really enforce it and everything else. But, you know, they threw them to their own party, through Chancellor House, literally are thieving the South African taxpayer are blind. Uh, you know, they should not be doing business with government. That's it. Or any government... Uh, 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 Gerald, that is definitely
0: a discussion that we will have in the near future I think it is something that we need to look at Uh, there are many grey areas, so to speak and some of them are not so grey but they're called grey so I think those are the kind of discussions that we need to be having especially around uh, impropriety so we'll definitely be engaging David Lewis again in the near future Joseph and Durban, hi
5: Hi, Mastrava, a new guest
0: Hi Joseph (laughs) yeah I think there
5: are two things that we should that we, we we have to do firstly, we have to decide whether we want to eradicate uh, corruption or we want to reduce corruption and if we want to reduce corruption we should continue with what we are currently doing. but if we want to eradicate corruption completely, we should come up with different mechanisms like for example,
0: f- okay for an example
5: for an example come up with a uh, uh, corruption watch unit or anti-corruption unit which will consist of members of the opposition party because you cannot be a player and a referee at the same time and again i'm saying corruption is not only happening in government even in the private sector yes, yes. and in the private sector you must then rock in the retired judges because those people that are still being paid by the state and they've got nothing to lose okay. and they must form part of the anti-corruption unit
0: Joseph and Devon <coughs> thank you very much for the call. When it comes to um, entities that are looking at corruption, there is Corruption Watch itself, which is not a government uh, department or even an organ of government. Uh, but there are also government uh, units like the SIU, which is another story, I guess, for another day. But there are various um, uh, institutions, the Hawks as well, looking into uh, corruption and uh, um, you know. Uh, um, imp- you know, uh, actions or behavior that requires some kind of investigation taking place within government. So there are quite a number of entities. And I think to eradicate something, you have to reduce it first, baby steps. So that's, uh, that's really just playing around with the English language. David Lewis, the future. Um, how can South Africans get involved? How can South Africans ensure that they are part and parcel of the fight against corruption?
1: well i mean i you know you're you're asking me and I would say to ask them to report uh experiences of corruption to us i mean i I think that there is a very strong and very outraged voice out there, and uh, often it doesn't express itself and you know what we're there to do is to provide a platform where people can express this and we'll We'll amplify that voice, and we'll focus some of the corruption, some of the the, the the voices. We'll create communities out of people who are interested in school corruption, out of people who are interested in corruption in the healthcare sector, and we'll and we'll ensure that this is communicated to to leaders in the public sector and the private sector, who I hope will ultimately come to see that um, even just averting your eyes from corruption, let alone. Let alone actually participating it, participating in it, will become a career-limiting move. You know,
5: mm-hmm.
1: that's what I think that we we can do. I mean, there are many other things that many others can do, but I think that's what people have to do. And uh, you know, I think that's what South Africans are good at is, um, you know, loudly stating what they think. And I think um, it's time to really state very loudly what people think about this which is why it's always so interesting for us to go on to shows like yours because there are a way of really gauging what
0: what people think. Mm, mm. So make your voice heard is what David Davis is saying. Dalton Borbady on our Facebook page S F M Radio says South Africa has many weaknesses in its system and its administration as there is no clear accountability mechanism and the only time that government acts and pretends to act against Mueller administration is when there is media scrutiny. He goes on to say currently we are aware of what is happening and the government is aware yet it's like they are in a state of paralysis. Solution is a zero tolerance policy and constant monitoring and segregation of duties and avoid centralization of duties. SMSs, some of them coming in talking uh, about uh, naming and shaming, um, saying. The thing is, government is run by cadres mainly and not professionals. It's a political suicide to investigate a fellow comrade. This is just lip service. Mohammed says, firstly, it is not perceived corruption per se, but confirmed. And uh, government officials involved in corruption should be sentenced to no less than 10 years and their assets to be revoked by the state. Nothing will ever happen because the entire government system is corrupt higher government system hmm. another SMS says from a lay perspective what is the detail of naming and shaming um, this is just a publicity through media platforms how many do we know to be unscrupulous already and yet they are just continuing on another SMS says um, everyone who is corrupt e.g. Travelgate, people who left before being prosecuted they should all have criminal records that's coming in from Francis in Alberton And, um the last SMS, this one coming in from Lefe, saying departments must publish all tender documents submitted for each tender after appointment. This will allow other bidders to evaluate the process and appeal if need be. So those are suggestions coming in. Um, those are some of the SMSs coming in from you on how government should be fighting corruption. Thank you so much, David Lewis, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. When we come back, we're going to be talking about unsecured lending and And accessing of new mortgage loans with Gary Palmer, CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions. The talk shop. This is the talk shop on SAFM 104 to 107 and I am Masichaba Mdolo. We are talking about unsecured lending and accessing of new mortgage loans with Gary Palmer, CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions. Finance Minister Pravin Gordon in his budget speech raised a concern regarding unsecured lending and uh, this is what we're talking about. Good evening to you Gary Palmer and thank you so much for joining us. Gary, when we're talking about unsecured lending, what exactly do we mean?
6: Um, We mean personal loans um, and any form of credit where there's no security to support a transaction. So it's predominantly personal loans.
0: But when thorough uh, uh, research is done when one applies for a loan, whether it be a personal loan or even new vehicle loan, thorough research is done, is it not, in terms of how much money you're earning and um, whether you list it with the credit bureau... Is this not some kind of, of, of securing?
6: No, I think uh, you're you correct that there is a process to be followed. Mm-hmm. The National Credit Act came into being a few years mm-hmm. ago, which clearly governs um, you know, how much money can be lent on, on unsecured loans, and that's uh, mainly proving affordability. So a lot of work is done before a loan is granted, uh, an unsecured space, and as you mentioned, on the you know car vehicle financing as well. But, um, you know, a lot of the people um, who require credit, you know, face a barrage of, of lenders out there just offering more and more money. So whilst there is a process in place, it just seems like it's gone, you know, very much over the top where the access to, you know, unsecured funding is probably the highest it's ever been.
0: But why is there a concern, especially as you're saying that there is a process in place? And and how, how are those who are providing credit just giving more and more and more when the National Credit Act makes it very clear that this is against the law?
6: Yeah, I think uh, what's happened, if you just look at the history, uh, in the past, the banks... Um, have always, um, you know, offered mortgage-backed loans and a degree of unsecured lending. But you know, new banks emerged like the Capitex and African Bank, and a lot of private lenders uh, in this space. And they were earning, you know, increased margin and earning uh, a lot of money, you know, servicing the previously unbanked. And when the banks noticed, you know, the returns that were being achieved, and I suppose a lot of the losses that they were, you know, as banks were achieving on mortgage-backed loans, they decided to to follow, you know, this route and concentrate on this market. Now. You know, yes, there, as I mentioned before, there are policies that need to be followed, mm. um, and they are being followed. But it is quite difficult to monitor in terms of proving somebody's income. You know, yes, you do the credit checks, but uh, a lot of them aren't up to date. Uh, you get a, a salary slip, but you do rely on a lot of the borrowers coming and uh, coming to you with information. Some of that might not be correct. You know, at, at, you know in every single instance, so there might be a degree of um, you know one person not being able to afford you know all the loan Loans that they've got, um, so it's very difficult to monitor um, exactly you know whether a person can afford these loans. Um, and what's happening as well, which is increased concern, is that you know the banks are giving more money. You know, so where a bank might have or another lender might have given five hundred rand as an unsecured loan, now they're increasing that to maybe seven hundred and fifty, mm. and then. unfortunately what they're doing is they're extending the loan period as well. So before it was a 500-rand loan over a relatively short period of time, which was fine, but now they're increasing the loan and extending the period. So once that person's in that trap, you know, um, know, paying these types of interest rates, it's very, very difficult uh, for them to get out of it.
0: And what about the sharing of information, uh, not only by the banks themselves, but also the non-bank lenders? I mean, if if one has... um, you know, got uh, unsecured credit at uh, uh, Bank A, B. Um, shouldn't this information be available to all the banks and the non-lenders as well? So you're aware of who is, uh, you know, how people stand financially.
6: Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think uh, the National Credit Regulator um, is putting sort of processes in place uh, for the sharing of information. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's also critical not only that, uh, you know, that the lenders have it because, it's, you know, the lender doesn't want to be in a situation where they lend money um, and they just know that they, and it's going to be very difficult for them to get it back. So I think it will benefit everybody if there is a, a, a certainly one database uh, which clearly you know, highlights if you pick one individual mm-hmm. exactly all the debt that they've got. So I, I believe the National Credit Regulator is working on that, um, and uh, you know, there, there have been comments that they are working on it, and it should come into force pretty soon.
0: All right. uh, We spoke uh, a while ago to someone from the NCR, and uh, um, so far there has not been anything with regards to that access to information. But like you say, we will look keenly at developments in that particular sector. Now... Paragon Lending Solutions is a non-bank lender. Where do non-bank lenders fit into the landscape of uh, the banks, the, um, you know, the uh, and, and various other uh, credit providers, so to speak?
6: Well, in the, in the boom times of 2008, you know, a lot of clients would really only knock on the bank's doors for funding. Um, and in the past, they used to only deal with really one bank. They had a strong relationship with one bank. Um, but that all changed you know, in the recession where all of a sudden the banks started pulling back on their loans. And we, we definitely saw an emergence uh, you know, in the UK and in America and now in South Africa of uh, other lenders entering uh, you know, filling with void. Because when the banks were pulling back, it did allow, um, you know, credible and reputable uh, non-bank lenders to enter the market. Um, and in some cases, these non-bank lenders are supported by the banks in terms of funding lines. So, you know, where non-bank lenders fit in is, is I suppose, just the mandate they've got to, to lend money, you know, maybe have different criteria to the banks. Because the banks at the moment on mortgage-backed loans um, have changed their cr- criteria quite dramatically compared with, you know, four or five years ago. So, a lot of non-bank lenders uh, have entered the market, mm-hmm. and it's not just private non-bank lenders, mm-hmm. it's lenders uh, also for the insurance companies. Um, I mean, they've become quite aggressive in this space as well, um, where they all of a sudden are you know, also looking for yield, and they are lending money you know, secured by property, mainly commercial property. So, five years ago, you would have you know, your, your, your big four banks plus uh, maybe a few other smaller banks. Mm-hmm. Um, dominating the market Mm -hmm. uh, on the mortgage-backed lending side. Now the landscape's changed. Um, You've still got the banks, albeit that their focus has changed now a lot to unsecured lending, um, as we discussed uh, previously, mm-hmm. um, and now you're finding other lenders, private non-bank lenders, um, other institutions which aren't banks lending, so it's a very, very interesting um, landscape at the moment.
0: And are all these lenders subject to the very same stringent uh, terms and conditions that the banks operate on, especially in terms of uh, what came out of, of the NCA?
6: No, they're not. Um, you know, a lot of the banks, for example, uh, are governed now by um, Basel three. Uh, which is a new regulation in terms of how much capital the banks need to hold mm-hmm. the reason that is is that you know, for one of the reasons is you know to protect depositors' money. Mm-hmm. So once you've got people depositing money, it has to you know you have a deposit-taking institution and you have to be governed by certain um, rules and regulations to protect that money. A lot of the the non-bank lenders you know aren't deposit-taking institutions. So in other words, they are maybe a little bit freer in terms of what they can do and you know the types of loans that they give out. Um, so they're not governed in the same respect like by Basel three. But having said that, you know. Um, um, you know i'm i'm really even though i'm you know run a non bank lending business you know I believe that there should be you know i'd say more regulation um, mm. even in the non bank lending space um because what, what you know in the past as well you know if, if people weren't borrowing money from the banks you know you had these thoughts in your head about loan sharks and about mm. people who are unscrupulous in the market, and those people still prevail. Um, mm. um, and so I've been a big promoter of, even in the non-bank lending space, you know, having a forum to control you know, the type of deals that, that are also done, because there's nothing worse than doing a transaction and actually lending money for the wrong reasons. Um, Absolutely yeah you know, because that becomes and you know, it doesn't benefit
0: anybody um, and and also when one looks at the interest rate charge, I mean you're talking about uh, you know the Mashonisas and and that, but at the end of the day, you also find that uh, your um, smaller banks, your uh, non bank lenders are charging incredible interest that one has to ask, is this really legal? is this legitimate?
6: Yes. I mean, if you go back to, you know, the lending to individuals, which is governed by the National Credit Act, you know, if you look at the fees and the cost, that's still expensive. And, mm. and, and it is for that reason that a lot of the banks, you know, have moved to focus on that area because it, because of Basel three, which I discussed. It's becoming... Mm difficult and more expensive for the banks to lend money you know, uh, on mortgage-backed lending. So they've now focused on the unsecured lending where, where their margins are probably three times the size of what they were on mortgage-backed lending. So w- one has to look at the reasons why banks and other lenders have gone into this unsecured lending space. I mean, just a you know, quick statistic. I mean, the, you know, uh, I mean, the size of the unsecured debt market at the moment in South Africa is about 140 billion rand. You know, that's a 40% increase compared with the same time last year. So it's clear where everyone is is going and, you know, that's, and, and people are, the banks are earning, you know, very high returns on the money. Getting back to, to your question about non-bank lenders and the interest, yes. I mean, I've seen, you know, certain non-bank lenders charge exorbitant rates, and they are outside the National Credit Act, um, but that's what also needs to be governed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. so that was my point earlier that mm. one does need a regulation in this space as well.
0: Now, when we're looking at unsecured lending and how it has grown, why has uh, new mortgage lending decreased?
6: Because um, I think if one increases, the other one will decrease because it's all about focus. So if the banks are focusing on sort of one area, they're going to put their time, effort, and resources to focus on unsecured lending. And their whole uh, policy has changed to focus on this area. But you, you've got to look at the last few years in mortgage back lending. Yeah. You know, you've seen with the implementation of Basel III, that it's becoming more expensive for the banks to, to lend into this market um, because the banks have to hold more capital. If the bar- banks hold more capital, means that they're not earning as much money on that capital that they're holding. I mean, interest rates are really at an all-time low. So the banks, you know, it's called the endowment effect. The banks are not earning as much money as they used to because they're holding more capital. So that's one reason. The other reason is bad debts. You know, the banks are still sitting with... Um, Quite a high level of bad debts um, relating to property-related transactions, like developments and what have you. For a lot to do with vacant land, mm. um, mm. which dates back to 2009 and 200210. So they're still sitting with with that legacy issues um, of the last few years of bad debts. And given that they haven't been earning the type of returns that they require in this space, you know that's why they've moved slightly um, away.
0: I'm looking at a call coming in, Russell in Durban. Hi.
6: How are you doing?
0: I'm good, Russell says. How are you?
3: I'm well, thank you. Um, I just caught the last bit of your insert on the radio, so please excuse me if my question is completely off topic, um, but I just wanted to ask your guests for some advice. Um, I'm someone who's got a background in financial services. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm now currently running my own business, and I've got what I believe is an extremely innovative Uh, structured product, what the industry refers to as a structured product, Mm -hmm. but I do not meet the very stringent criteria um, that the Financial Services Board has laid out. So I wanted to find out from your guest if he could advise me how do I go about um, almost offering the structured product to a registered financial service provider without the risk of them stealing my product and selling it to their clients is something that they've devised. Okay, Russell in Durban trying to hijack
0: our discussion around unsecured lending but I hear your question I'm going to give um, uh, our guest Gary Palmer a chance to respond. Thank you so much for the call. That's Russell in Durban. Before we even respond to Russell, I want to talk, Gary, about how those who are looking to buy uh, new homes can can enter the market and, and what do developers do now because we are aware of the need for more homes in South Africa. Government cannot take care of everybody by providing the RDP houses. So what happens to those who have a bit of money, um, would like to enter uh, or get uh, a a new mortgage, so to speak? Uh, What is the next step for them? And developers as well, in terms of providing housing in our country. And of course, we'll respond to Russell in Durban's uh, um, uh, question that came via our call line. And uh, this is all happening Right after the news with Gret host we will continue our discussion with Gary Palmer, CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions. The Talk Shop this is the talk shop on SAFM South Africa's news and information leader and I am Masa Chabamdolo in conversation with Gary Palmer CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions we're looking at unsecured lending and concerns raised by the Minister of Finance Prevent Gordon around unsecured lending and also talking about accessing new mortgage loans we're taking your calls 0891 104 0891 or SMS 34701 SMS number is is 34701 and smss are charged at 2 rand. Gary, when we're talking about uh, new mortgage lending decreasing, what does that say for new buyers, especially who are looking at entering the uh, uh, you know um, uh, the, the 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 market who want to own homes?
6: This is a, It doesn't bode well uh, for you know new buyers into this market. You know when the the banks have sort of moved their focus away from this space, um, it's going to become quite difficult. Um, you know to. To you know, attract the, f- the funding To buy new homes But having said that um, you know I think if you, if you look at a few years ago It was very easy um, To get funding for new homes um, I mean banks were lending at the time 108% loan to value mm. um, Given the client didn't need to put down a deposit The banks were even funding the transfer duty So you know, when the market Slowed down a little bit And the values of these properties dropped That's what caused the greatest concern with the banks um, Is that their loan to values were now in excess of probably 120% and uh, an average consumer was also battling um, so they they were battling to meet them after the Mm -hmm. instalments. That's what caused the major problem. But should a client um, you know, having en- enough of a deposit. Um, you know, to put down towards a property, call it a ten maybe a ten percent or fifteen percent uh deposit, um, and have, you know, good income and can easily show and demonstrate their income uh to a pay slip, um, or other forms of uh you know, supporting documentation, then um, and then it's very possible to and relatively easy to get finance. So, you know, one mustn't you know, have a look at, you know, comparing a few years ago when it was just very easy to get funding mm. and everyone got it and the people that shouldn't have received that funding received the funding and that's what caused the problem
0: but uh, aren't we now also excluding those who do qualify but uh, the criteria has now been set too high, I know of concerns around having um, uh, around 15-20% uh, to 20% of the bond as deposit also having your transfer charges and uh, you know all these things that one, your. Uh, your attorney's fees, all these things that one needs to have in order to enter the market. And um, the concern is the, the costs are prohibitively too high.
6: I agree with you. I mean, I think it is um, a lot more difficult now than it was a few years ago. Um, having said that, I mean, uh, you know, yes, it is expensive. But, you know, if you look at transfer duty, I know that the government is trying its best to, to actually make, you know, to actually take away transfer duty uh, on purchases below a certain level. Mm. So the government is playing its part to try and make the process cheaper, um, but I think it's good credit as well if you've if you've got somebody who wants to purchase a house to be able to demonstrate to the lender that they do have um, uh, some deposit. Um, as opposed to no deposit at all. Um, you know, and that lender should, should uh, sorry, that borrower should plan ahead. So if they do want to buy a property, then you know, instead of going out tomorrow and going to buy a property and get access to funding immediately, they might need to wait maybe a month or two and start saving. Because um, sa- the savings level in South Africa is atrocious. Um, mm-hmm. I and mean, I think it's one of the lowest in the world. So, you know, they, they, they do need to save. They do need to have that buffer should something go wrong and should they need to put down a deposit towards a property. So I don't think it's I don't think it's it's incorrect. I don't think the banks are wrong um, in in requesting a, a small deposit towards a property and requesting that clients can show the ability to service the loan on a monthly
0: basis. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And and what about the devel- new developers specifically? Um, are, are they do they have space in the market? Is there consideration for them?
6: Yeah, now this this to me is a is a very important area because you know obviously with developments come uh, in, you know employment. Mm. You know, You've got to recruit a lot of people to do a development, and comes the um, availability of you know of flats and houses.
0: Homes.
6: So so, uh-huh. so somebody needs to you know put their hand up and and actually get back into the market from a lending perspective. You know residential developments, the banks have uh, shied away from this. Um, they were very aggressive a few years ago. Now they've shied away from it. So that's where uh, the non bank lenders now are. are actively playing a role where the banks don't want to play at the moment so you know should a bank want to do a development you know the the terms of conditions are really strict um, to do a development Um, I'm Greg The Talk Show
0: this is the talk Shop on S A F M, South Africa's news and information leader, and I am Masichabam Dolo in conversation with Gary Palmer, CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions. We're looking at unsecured lending and concerns raised by the Minister of Finance, Previn Gordon, around unsecured lending, and also talking about accessing new mortgage loans. We're taking your calls: oh eight nine one one zero four two zero seven, oh eight nine one one zero four two zero seven, or SMS three four seven zero one. SMS number. Is 34701 and SMSs are charged at two rand. Gary, when we're talking about uh, new mortgage lending decreasing, what does that say for new buyers, especially who are looking at entering the market, who want to own homes?
6: Yeah, it doesn't bode well uh, for, you know, new buyers into this market. You know, when the the banks have sort of moved their focus away from this space, um, it's going to become quite difficult, um, you know, to to you know, attract the, the funding to buy new homes. But having said that, um, you know, I think if you, if you look at a few years ago, it was very easy um, to get funding for new homes. Um, I mean, banks were lending at the time 180% loan-to-value, mm-hmm. um, you know, given the client didn't need to put down a deposit. The banks were even funding the transfer duty. So you know, when the market slowed down a little bit and the values of these properties dropped, that's what caused the greatest concern with the banks, um, is that their loan-to-values were now in excess of probably 120%, and uh, you know the average consumer was also battling, um, so they, they were battling to meet their monthly the instalments. Mm-hmm. So that caused the major problem. But should a client um, you know, having enough of a deposit. Um, you know, to put down towards a property, call it a ten maybe a ten percent or fifteen percent uh deposit, um, and have, you know, good income and can easily show and demonstrate their income uh to a pay slip, um, or other forms of uh, you know, supporting documentation, then um, and then it's very possible to and relatively easy to get finance. So, you know, one mustn't you know, have a look at, you know, comparing a few years ago, when it was just very easy to get funding mm. and everyone got it, and the people that shouldn't have received that funding received the funding, and that's what caused the problem.
0: But uh, aren't we now also excluding those who do qualify? But uh, the criteria has now been set too high. I know of concerns around having um, uh, around uh, fifteen to twenty percent of the bond as deposit, also having your transfer charges, and uh, you know all these things that one your. Uh, your attorney's fees, all these things that one needs to have in order to enter the market. And um, the concern is the, the costs are prohibitively too high.
6: I agree with you. I mean, I think it is um, a lot more difficult now than it was a few years ago. Um, having said that, I mean, uh, you know, yes, it is expensive, but, you know, if you look at transfer duty, I know that the government is trying its best to, to actually make, you know, to actually take away transfer duty uh, on purchases below a certain level. Mm. So the government is playing its part to try and make the process cheaper. Um, but I think it's good credit as well if you've, if you've got somebody who wants to purchase a house to be able to demonstrate to the Lender, that they do have um, uh, some deposit um, as opposed to no deposit at all, um, you know, and that, lender should, should, uh, sorry, that borrower should plan ahead. So if they do want to buy a property, then you know, instead of going out tomorrow and going to buy a property and get access to funding immediately, they might need to wait maybe a month or two and start saving, because um, the savings level in South Africa is atrocious, um, mm. and I think it's one of the lowest in the world. So you know, they, they, they do need to save, they do need to have that buffer. Should something go wrong, and should they need to put down a deposit towards a property? So I don't think it's I don't think it's it's incorrect. I don't think the banks are wrong um, in in requesting a, a small deposit towards a property and requesting that clients can show the ability to service the loan on a
0: monthly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And and what about the devel- new developers specifically? Um, are, are they do they have space in the market? Is there consideration for them?
6: Yeah, now, this this to me is a, is a very important area because, you know, obviously with developments come, uh, in, you know, employment. Mm. You know, you've got to recruit a lot of people to do a development and comes the um, availability of, you know, of flats and houses. Home, so, so, so somebody needs to, you know, put their hand up and, and actually get back into the market from a lending perspective. You know, residential developments, the banks have uh, shied away from this. Um, they were very aggressive a few years ago and now they've shied away from it. So that's where uh, the non-bank lenders now are... are actively pay, playing a role where the banks don't want to- so, you know, should a bank want to do a development? You know, the, the terms and conditions are really strict um, yeah, to do a development in terms of the level of pre-sales that they need, in terms of the, the insurances that they need. Um, you know, and it's just, you know, I've recently just seen a, a bank facility say on what they require on a development. I mean, it becomes very difficult to, to transact on that basis. So that's where a lot of non-bank lenders have come into the market with maybe a slightly different view, albeit that they might be more expensive than the bank's, um, you know, they do offer. A, we offer a, a quicker turnaround time um, and take a different view to development. So I see this as a, from a lending perspective, a big opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and developers are, are, are actively searching and and, and and looking for alternatives uh, at the moment.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Gary Palmer, CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions. Before I let you go, Russell will kill me if he doesn't get an answer with regards to his question. Russell in Johannesburg.
6: Yeah, I've, I've given some thought to Russell's question. Mm. I mean, the reality is, is that what's blocking him at the moment, he said, the, the regulations are, the you know, are too much uh, mm. for him to follow. You know, the point is, if he wants a competitive advantage, then, then and, and he wants to offer this product into the market, then he should comply um, with all the required regulations. You know, if if the, the risk he faces, if he doesn't do that and he goes through an intermediary, um, then the risk is, you they take they take his idea. You know, that does happen often, but you can try and cover yourself by signing you know, non-disclosures and confidentiality forms and what have you. But if my advice to Russell is that if it's uh, as good a product as what he says it is, then he would take the extra time and effort and try and comply with all the required regulations.
0: Thank you so much, Gary Palmer. Russell, I hope you are answered. Gary is the CEO of Paragon Lending Solutions, non-bank lender, talking about unsecured lending and accessing new mortgage loans right here on the Talk Shop. We'll move-